Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is Jason Roundsville. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dylan Ray. Today, we have a very special guest, Jim Willems. Jim is a current board member. He is a past president of the Pope and Young. He has been on a number of board of directors all over all over the country um, promoting bow hunting and, and hunting in general, uh, an outdoorsman and bow hunter extraordinaire. Jim, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. That's quite the introduction there. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be on the podcast and look forward to talking to you guys. Absolutely. I, I always enjoy our discussions and I think it always starts off every time we talk, I always ask what state are you in and what are you hunting? So what <laughs> state are you in, Jim? I am in New Mexico at my house. I'm at home. Um, <laughs> I, I just got back from uh, a coos deer hunt in Sonora, Mexico though. I got back a couple of days ago on that. So how'd that one turn out? Uh, it was, it was good. Uh, you know, with bow hunters, we, we hunt water a lot for coos deer. And, of course, it rained when I got there, and it rained three of the seven days I was there. So that, that made it tougher. But I, I shot a nice buck. Um, didn't get the monster I was hoping for. You know, when you go to places like Sonora that basically nobody hunts, um, and, uh, and, and nobody really hunted this ranch for a long time. So you always have hopes of that really world-class buck showing up and uh this time it, it just didn't i didn't have great conditions and and but I, sh- I shot a nice seven point he was a nice buck and man those things taste good those are some deer yes they are you know you wouldn't necessarily expect that being out in the desert like that oh i know they you know they got just crap to eat they're eating, it's just cactus and thorn bush and there's a little bit of grass, but the grass is just dry and crunchy and crispy. And uh, I don't know, there's, there must be some leaves in some of those uh, mesquite trees or whatever little prickly bushes they have that, that uh, turns green protein into very good meat protein. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a fan of meat protein. <laughs> you and me both, brother. Yeah. So what I, speaking of that, of, of all your travels, and I know you've been all over the world, you've, you've gone almost everywhere. What is, of everything that you've taken, what is your favorite meat or what is your favorite game that you've had from across the world? You know, that, that is, that's just a tough one. And, and part of it is I don't really have favorites. I just, I like a huge variety of stuff. 
Um, but, but there are obviously there's wild game that's better than others. And, uh, um, some of the African stuff is really good. Kudu and Eland is always really good. Um, interesting story. I may have told you before, but, uh, I hunted South Africa, um, first couple of times I hunted in Africa and, uh, you know, you always want to eat everything you kill and just want to try it. And, uh, the cooks there wouldn't cook zebra or wildebeest. They said, it's just not worth eating. And, and then a few years later, I'm hunting Zimbabwe and asking the guys there, the, the professional hunters, oh, what's your favorite to eat? And they both said zebra. And I was like, man, I, I heard that wasn't any good. You know, that's interesting because when I was in Botswana, the, the zebra, nobody really wanted, but I have a good friend of mine, Dave Sita, who's uh, one of our outfitter partners. And he went to South Africa and, and they did the same thing. They tried every, everything they shot, they tried. And their favorite for that trip was the zebra. So I've heard that from a number of people. Yeah. So, so while I was in Zimbabwe, I, I killed a nice zebra with my bow and, uh, Two or three days later, they bring out this this tenderloin that uh, it has a little bit of funny color to it because the meat is yellow, almost orange, or not the meat, the the fat is, you know, a dark yellow, almost orange. It looks looks like it's kind of half rotten when you're cutting it up. Um, and uh, they brought out this big old tenderloin, two of them, and and uh, that's zebra. Let's try it. And holy smokes, that was some of the best meat I've ever had. And, wow. Uh, so, so that's the African stuff, and 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 North America, you know, I, it it does make a difference what time of year they're killed and what they're eating. Um, you know, the mule deer in, in New Mexico and Colorado in the winter time when they're out on the sagebrush, uh, they they get a little bit of stronger flavor. Um, but Midwest whitetails, I've never had a bad one. I'll, I could eat those every day. The, the coos whitetail, really surprising from what they eat. And and then the other one is the, the Sitka blacktail up in Alaska. They are really good as well. So, uh, um, you know, and, and that's all I eat. I don't buy meat in the grocery store ever. Um, I just eat wild game and fish. And, uh, you know, you have to learn how to cook it and take care of it because it's usually drier and it's usually tougher. So that, that takes a little extra work. But. <clears throat> but I, I like to argue with people. They they ask, well, how do you deal with the gamey taste? And, and I always say there's no such thing as a gamey taste. Some meat is just more flavorful than others. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think sometimes if you shoot it and then you leave it in the back of your truck for eight hours in the sun, you might get something you're not exactly fond of. But I was always taught that you get them down, you get – you know, you, you field dress them as soon as you can. You get the skin off and cool them out. And and I'm like you, I, I just haven't had a bad one. Yeah, I haven't either. I, I, I eat everything. And there's there's been a few that were, you know, not quite as good. Like I said, maybe some wintertime mule deer. But then I've, I've also killed mule deer in January on the sagebrush that were just as good as my Kansas whitetail. So, uh you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of different aspects that go into making a good piece of meat. Um, the only other thing I, I can remember is I've I've killed two mountain goats uh, in Colorado with my bow, and and both of those were they were edible, but but you know how it is. You got a freezer full of meat, and you have whitetail, you have elk, and you have mountain goat, and then come July you look down and all you have left is mountain goat because you just <laughs> keep passing it up. So uh, mountain goat's pretty good for, uh, you know, summer sausage and the jerky sticks and that kind of stuff. There you go. What about, you know, the other one that you hear that always kind of surprises me a little bit when you hear it, but but I've heard from, from several sources that they say is, is a cut above is cougar. Have you tried that? I, I have. Uh, I've I've killed one. My brother's killed a couple. I have friends that have killed them, and and it's it's a really good flavored meat. It's a white meat. It's it's even lighter colored than pork, um, and and because of that, it's a little hard to to deal with because you can't tell when it's done like you can with uh, you know with the red meat. The red meat turns brown, and right. and with, by the time the cougar turns brown, it's overcooked and it's tough. Um, okay. But, but the flavor's great. You know, I've heard people say it tastes like turkey. Well, I, I think it probably looks like turkey, but 
you know, it just tastes like, like its own meat. And, and, uh, you know, there's not a huge difference in flavors in any of them. Um, they're all just slightly different and, uh, I, I tend to enjoy them all. Yeah. Yeah. That one was just, I've, I've heard people say, Oh, it's a really sweet meat. And to me earlier, you mentioned Elon and we had a, a, a tenderloin off of an Elon and that was probably my all-time favorite. I'm like you, I like them all, but that one with the, you know, you're in Africa, they're cooking over literally an open fire and just for whatever reason, the experience and, and the whole thing, I, I think that was probably my favorite. Yeah. It's pretty darn good. Yeah. And it's, it, until you get there and you look at it, you just can't, you know, you, you look at, you think of an eland and you don't realize how massive those things are compared to, you know, what we have over here in a, in a deer or an elk. It's just, it's, it, it was until I got up close, it, it was hard to ju- just capture that in my mind. Yeah. And they're, they're probably a little bit heavier, but they're, you know, similar size to a, a, an Alaskan Yukon moose, you know, they're that tall and that long. Um, the eland's probably broader in the chest um, so they're, I think they're probably a heavier animal, but they're really good. And, and then I'm really fortunate living in New Mexico. We have, have the chance to hunt oryx. They were transplanted back in the sixties and they've done really well. And, and I, I've been lucky enough that uh, I actually shot two this last year. Um, I shot one in February and then, uh, you know, our season starts again, April 1st, I was able to hunt them again in June. And, and, uh, I was determined to get one with my bow and, and finally got a, 38 yard shot on a nice one back in June and, and finally got an arrow into one. So I'm eating well this year between the there you go. Oryx, the Oryx and, and, uh, you know, white tails and coos deer. Um, boy, we, we have some good food. Yeah. I, I, has there been a year that you can recall where you didn't have a couple of freezers full of meat? Um, you know, not since I was <laughs> 18 years old. There you go. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Kansas, and and uh, you only you could only kill one deer, and at that time you couldn't even shoot a doe. Um, so so there was some lean times when I was eighteen, nineteen years old. Um, but I ate a heck of a lot of pheasant, and a heck of a lot of duck. So uh, you know, I guess it never was empty, but I I didn't have a whole lot of red meat back in those days. Yeah, boy, if you're eating duck, you must have been it must have been a little slim around there. Oh, you know, my mom was uh, cooked a great duck, and and of course some are better than others. And and to this day, teal is maybe one of my favorite meats of all time, um, because you know they have a they have more flavor than than a lot of fowl, but they don't have a strong flavor. They don't have a, a wake you up flavor. They're just really good. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, I I love duck hunting, but a lot of mine come from the the coast and the salt water and it's not exactly the same as shooting those corn fed mallards. No, probably not. And, <laughs> and even, you know, last night I, I had something I don't think I'd ever had before. I had, uh, I had prairie chicken for dinner last night. And nice. That's uh yeah, it's, it's a darker meat, a stronger meat. It's, it's kind of in between pheasant and duck, but it was pretty darn good. Very nice. There's not a lot of places you can go to get those anymore. There's not. It is not, and uh, and you got to be you got to pay attention to the rules because the the seasons might be pretty short, and some places you have to have a special permit to do it. And um, but but yeah, I'd I'd been seeing some for a while, and and I thought I'd be prepared to try to get one, and eventually got a shot at one, and so I I took it and brought it home and ate it. Now, did you get it with your bow? Um, I wish I could say yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> That's- you know, there's, there's uh, that you, you're hunting for a purpose, and then there's hunts you go on that you're hunting for a, an adventure or an experience. And yeah. uh, some, sometimes it's just the purpose is just the meat, just to eat something different. And, uh, you know, I, I, if I'm going for the experience, it's just, I'm going to be bow hunting. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm hunting birds or, or especially predators, coyotes, I, I get real aggressive on them, and I, I hunt those with a rifle. Yeah. Well, there, that's not a sin. No. Yeah. That's, um, I, I chased grouse a little bit, uh, around home this year with a bow and I, I can tell you unequivocally that it's easier to shoot them with a shotgun. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what what is next up? Are are you getting ready for turkey season, or what's next up on your hunt list, Jim? Yeah, turkey will be next. Uh, you know, I live in New Mexico and I have a, a ranch in Kansas, so I try to shoot two turkeys in New Mexico and then two in Kansas because I I really like to eat them and and they're fun to hunt. Yeah. And uh, and then I drew. I, I was gonna say this year I drew, but no, the way it works, almost two years ago I drew a bear tag. Uh, for Prince of Wales Island in Alaska, and that hunt will be coming up. Uh, it's like the whole month of May and June, something like that. And so oh, I'll wow. be in Alaska bear hunting the end of May. So okay. And then uh, which which bow are you taking for that one? Uh, probably just my 52 pound Bighorn. Um, I, I for a long time it's either been the 52 pound Bighorn recurve or the 60 pound Bighorn recurve. They're both 56 inch bows. And if I'm not hunting something really big, I shoot the 52 pound bow because I'm, I'm way more accurate with it. Um, okay. Last time I shot the 60 pound, I, I drew a, a Henry Mountain bison tag in Utah, free ranging bison hunt in Utah. And uh, as soon as I, I saw online that I drew the tag, I, you know, got out my 60 pound bow, put my 52 pounder away, and and shot the 60 pound bow the whole year, just getting ready for that bison hunt. Now, Jim, you yeah. have a one of my favorite stories of all time is a a bear hunting story uh, from Alaska of yours. Uh, you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, well, yeah, there's been more than one, <laughs> but I'm I'm sure there's one that sticks out. Tell me that story. I, I that know bear. which one it is. Yeah, the second time I hunted brown bears in Alaska, um, I booked a hunt with a Fognac Island Wilderness Lodge. I believe is the name of the outfit. Um, pretty easy to find. It's only a Fognac Island hunting camp that I know of. And uh, I had hunted uh, Sitka Blacktail with them the year before, and we did kind of a, a semi-guided, self-guided. You know, some days you had a guide, and then the rest of the hunt you went out on your own. And uh, they talked me into applying for the brown bear hunt there, and, and uh, I did that. And thank goodness I did. It was an unbelievable hunt. You know, it's it started out tough. Um, second day, saw a about an eight and a half foot brown bear bedded down that that uh, we walked up on looked like he was sleeping, and and I think could have very easily shot him. We were, well, we were within 30 yards right there, and, you know, and and that's close enough. But I think we could have got closer. And but then we had a heck of a time finding any any big bears or any big tracks or anything. And and as we're going along, um, you know, day after day, and uh, and here's the cool part about the hunt: uh, they're 10 day hunts opens October 25th and and I was scheduled for the second hunt so I was going to start hunting on like November 3rd or 4th or something like that um but but I got home from church on on the 26th of October and had a message on my phone I put it on silent and uh the guide up there said hey Jim the uh the, the guy on the first hunt he killed his bear on the first day and he's he's already gone sooner you get here we'll go hunting and and all of a sudden my 10-day hunt turned into a i guess it would have been a 17-day hunt so so man i was on cloud nine there but anyhow we had a dickens of a time finding any good tracks and and it, it was bad enough that my guide luke luke randall he he, he was saying you know there's got to be something there's got to be a dead whale or something that has the bears all in one spot because they should be more spread out right now and we're just not finding tracks where we should and and uh and we could find sows and cubs and little bears but just nothing big and finally on about the eighth day we we spotted a big track on the beach and um you know landed the boat and and snuck up there and and uh you know could see the top end of a, a bear so you know we got all ready and snuck up there and it, and uh, it was looking like a big one we we're within about 50 yards and I uh, just can't see all of it. And then pretty soon, you know, two cubs pop up. It's like, oh, man, that's a that's a sow with cubs. And, and uh, you know, unlike all other bears, the, the brown bear sows get huge. They're, you know, they're almost as big as the the boars. They're, you know, they look as big. They just aren't as heavy and have smaller heads. But but through all this, uh, Luke's saying, man, I can smell it. He said, there's a dead whale over here somewhere. So. So we crawled up on a hill and, and glassed down, and sure enough, here's this big old pile of goo down on the beach, and uh, we could see 
six or seven bears right there, right then. And, and we were within 150 yards of it. And we sat there all day waiting for that, that big bear, the one with the big track to show up. And he never did. We saw 17 different bears on that whale in one day. And, and, uh, it was open enough country. You kind of keep track of which one was which and, and, uh, but just no, no big ones. So we thought, well, we got to come back, um, really, really early. He's going to be nocturnal. You know, his tracks are here. He's coming here, but he must just be nocturnal. So, so we went back to the lodge, got a good night's sleep, got up real early and, and, uh, the wind had changed. So we had to come in from a different direction and guide had a helper. He, he sent him up on the hill to glass down to the, the whale while we were getting our stuff ready. And, and, uh, he come back and said, yeah, he's there. And, and Luke says, is it a big one? And I said, no, 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 don't even say that. Just tell me if it's big enough. I don't want to know how big it was because the track looked huge. He just looked like a monster track. And, so uh, it was in a pretty good spot. We we landed the boat and snuck in from a little different direction, and and he had a, a hillside between us and the and the uh, whale where you know the the ocean had washed in all kinds of logs and debris and stuff, you know about 20 yards above the whale. So had some good cover and snuck in there and and uh, yeah, sure enough, here's this big bear and and. You know, didn't he was quartered on a little bit, so I had to wait a while to get the right angle, and and uh, eventually kind of moved, and and you know, Luke and I both thought he was about broadside, so I took the shot. Um, Luke had ranged it at 28 yards, I think, is what he said, and uh, or maybe he said 23. I, I don't remember, but anyhow, um, you know, and, and that's another thing. I, I was shooting a 85-pound uh, 80, compound bow. Um, which I had bought to hunt elephants in Africa. And uh, um, another part of the story is, you know, I was going to shoot the bear with my recurve, but I'd hurt my neck pretty bad the, a few days before I got the phone call saying, come come to the hunt. And I just couldn't shoot. I just could not anchor and, and shoot consistently. And and I thought, you know, I'll just I'll go see my chiropractor buddy next week, and he'll get me worked out. And by the end of the next week, I'm ready to go hunt, and I'll be fine. And and of course, that didn't work out. So so I threw in the compound bow, um, shot it a little bit before I left home. I, I hadn't shot it for a while, not since the last time I was in Africa, and and took both bows. And as it turned out, I had to hunt with the with the compound. It was either that or the rifle, um, which is neither good or bad. Um, I just I just feel better when I'm hunting with a recurve. And uh, so back to the hunt, the the first shot, um, I, I hit a little low. Um, and if he'd been perfectly broadsided, it'd still been a really good shot. But either he wasn't as broadside as we thought, or I got a deflection because the arrow, the arrow came out on the other side, kind of at the back of the ribs. And, and uh, the bear hunched up. He didn't run. He just hunched up and and uh, you can tell by the look on his face, he's like, man, that was whatever I just ate was really bad. It's giving me a belly ache. And and uh, he turns and starts walking towards us and still on the beach, though. And, and uh, he walks by at, at, you know, maybe 10 yards. It was close and walks by broadside. And I, I get another arrow in him and it's just perfect right behind the shoulder and goes in clear to the fletch and. And, uh, you know, he breaks it off right there at the fletch and that fletch end falls off. And, and, but there's another big bear down on the beach, not, not as big, but he's waiting his turn to go eat on that whale. And I think cause that bear was there, the other bear, my bear kind of turned and walked towards us instead of just going down the beach and leaving. And, and by doing that, he walked by at maybe 10 feet and, and walked past us and, uh, I've, I've got my head down knocking up another arrow thinking I don't need it, but you know, what else are you going to do? And he walked past us about 10 yards and, and started to go down. I thought, Oh man, he, he's dead. And just like that, he turned and ran straight to us. He had, he got downwind of us, got our wind and, and knew something was wrong and just turned and came at us. And, and the guide had to shoot it at six or eight feet in front of us. So, so I don't have a, a big trophy bear with my bow because it's got a bullet hole in it. Um, but I do have a heck of a video. 
to show people. I've seen the video. I, I can attest to that. It's pretty impressive. What do you yeah. search on YouTube to find that to find that video again, Jim? Search Luke Randall 2014 bear hunt. I promise you, if you've not seen the video he's talking about, you need to Google that, um, put it in on YouTube, and go watch it because it is insane. And I remember seeing that video before I ever became friends with Jim. I saw that video, and, and I was like, man, this is incredible. And then one time I was recording a podcast with Jim, and he told me this story, and I'm like, dude, I think I saw this video that you're talking about. You know, I think that, you know, this video went viral with me and my buddies and we were showing it around and, and uh, you know, I had no idea who you are. And so now I finally got to meet the man who, who uh, I saw on that on that beach. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, people say, how how'd you hold it together? What was going through your mind? And, well, you know, I was knocking up another arrow, getting ready to shoot again. That's what was going through my mind. Um, I, I didn't really give it a second thought. I'd have been looking around. I'd have been like, man, am I faster than any of these other guys? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. That's that stuff I don't even think about. It just, yeah. you're out there to hunt, and if something bad happens, well, I guess it was your day. Yeah. What what a, what a neat experience, though. And so if, if you had to pick, you know, obviously that one is a world-class level experience. What would be another one of your favorite favorite hunting stories? Um, Either because of the trophy or the location or, or what's something else that you'd put up there? Yeah, I just, I have hundreds of them and I tell so many stories that, that, uh, you know, it's, I've just led led a blessed life and I get to go to a lot of cool places and, and above that, I've been just really fortunate to see some really neat things that maybe other people wouldn't be able to see. And that's, you know, directly related to bow hunting because you get close and, uh, and I think it's even more related to hunting with traditional equipment because you have to get even closer yet. But, you know, my most exciting story all time is my, my 2018 Kansas whitetail. And, uh, it's, it's just exciting because he is so big and so unexpected and, uh, um, you know, just, just the whole experience. And it was a, almost a, well, it was a month long adventure just to, just to get to see the buck, let alone get a shot. So, um, you know, I can get into that one. Um, yeah, one of those deals I, where, yeah I, I read that article and that was yeah. a great article. So, uh, tell us about that. my wife and I, uh, we both grew up in Kansas and, and I tried farming. I took over the family farm for a while and, and, uh, ended up buying some, some property when I was 19 that I bought it because it's where I'd killed my first two deer uh, when I lived there. And, and also I, it, you know, I could run cattle on it and try to make a little money off of it, but it was all about the deer hunting. And, and, you know, fast forward 40 years later and, and, uh, we own uh, a little over 1200 acres in Kansas. And, you know, aside from that first 80 acres, we started getting the rest of it in, in 2010. And just, we spent a lot of time there. We have a house there and we spent a lot of time working on the property and, improving it and habitat and uh cameras out year round and 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 when i'm getting ready to go hunting in kansas i pretty well know what's around you know because i've I've known them from either the the bucks from the years before or just cameras being out and uh but i got to kansas and and as i'm driving to kansas i i'm just so excited you know i couldn't hardly stand and i and i didn't know why and I was telling Lisa that when we're driving, I said, man, this is going to be a fun hunt. Um, but I didn't really have anything real special on camera, just, you know, this, the same old stuff, which for Kansas is still pretty nice. And, but I was just excited. So I get there and, and uh, have one spot. It's kind of a remote property. Um, it's, it's not a very big piece of property. And, and I, I usually put two cameras on it. I put one kind of under my stand on the trail and then there's a, a bend on the creek that always has a scrape on it and you know about no oh, about 100 yards away so i'm going in there i don't know the 25th of october i have to walk in because the crops hadn't been cut yet and uh, it's about a half mile walk you know no big deal but i've got two cameras in my backpack and thought, well, I'm, i'll set up the cameras and and I'm, I'm walking in i look up and and shoot my old camera still there i thought well i thought i'd taken it down but there it is and and, uh, but you know, it's almost a year old. It's going to need batteries. So I just take it down and put up, 
I took new cameras and leave and and go home and look at the pictures and there's there's not a lot there. The, this place has been kind of disappointing. I've been hunting it for four years and and never had seen a buck I wanted to kill, but you know, you, you gotta keep trying. And and I go on, I'm I'm working on my property and um I think on about October twenty eighth, I uh I go in there and I'm just gonna hunt the morning just to just do something different and check it out and check the cameras and saw a few little deer and pulled the discs and, and I, I generally don't look at the discs when I'm in the stand. I just pull them and stick them in my pocket, put new ones in. And, and uh, I'm at the house that night after dinner, sitting in a recliner, get my laptop out, popping in discs. And, and I pop in this disc from these two cameras and um, here's this big old 10 point right in front of one camera. It's like, holy smokes, where did he come from? And, and then I look at the other disc and yeah, he'd been at the scrape too, both nighttime pictures. And I called my brother up and I said, man, you will not believe this. I said, I think you'll go 190, Dan. And, and, you know, you hear that all the time, huge deer, this big, you know, 190, 200, 180. And, and none of us ever believes it, right? It's always an exaggeration. And so, uh, so I discovered this deer on the 28th of October and, you know, decided, you know, this is it. I've never even seen a buck this big, not a, not a typical anyway. And I've only seen a couple of non-typicals that, that might be that bigger, bigger. So, so I'm hunting and I'm hunting and, and, uh, every now and then I'd get a nighttime picture, never anything during the day. Uh, but I'm thinking that, you know, maybe he's, you know, walking by my camera at night, maybe he's back in the trees during the day, maybe he'll walk by in the trees, whatever. And, then he disappeared for eight or nine days and, and, you know, I'm in the stand and he's not there anymore. And I'm just convinced that one of the neighbors has killed him. And, uh, I thought, well, you know, there's easier deer to hunt on my place. I, you know, I can really pattern things on my property a lot better. And there's some nice deer there. There's a really nice 11 pointer, but I'll just go hunt there tomorrow. And, and of course, I, I get home that night and I check the the disc from when I went in hunting, and sure enough, he'd been there the night before. So, well, son of a gun, he's still here. So that's kind of how it was for three weeks, just up and down and up and down. He's he's here and then he's not, and <clears throat> then I finally just decided, you know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and I decided uh, um, he's got me figured out. That's why he's so nocturnal. He knows I'm around. And, and I just need to, it's just not going to happen. I just need to give up and, and go shoot one of those other deer. And then just like before I get home, I check the camera and he had, I had walked out of the stand at six o'clock on like a Tuesday evening. And, and he walked by at six twenty, which is too late to shoot. But then that told me, you know, he doesn't know I'm there or he wouldn't be walking by 20 minutes after I left. That's just not how it works. So. So here we go. I, I got to give up my all. And, and, uh, of course we're, we've been away from home, Lisa and I for over a month now. And, and she's saying, you know, how, how much longer? And I said, well, season ends December 31st. And she didn't like that much. That, that was a whole nother month. And, uh, you know, the rifle hunt was coming up. It always opens the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. And uh, I had found out that, that a, a rifle hunter was hunting the property to the south of me. Um, and, and he had some pictures of the deer, and he was just chomping at the bit, waiting for rifle season to open. And he was, he was driving by every couple of days, and I'd actually met the guy. And uh, I thought, you know what, if I don't get him by the first couple of days of rifle season, I'm just not going to get him. So uh, I, I, I decided to take Thanksgiving Day off, spend the whole day with, with family. And then I was going to start again on Friday and hunt for a week solid. And uh, if I didn't get him by the next Friday, I figured he'd, he'd probably be dead. So I uh, got out there and went back to hunting and, and still hadn't even seen the deer. Not only had not seen him, I didn't have a single daylight picture of him. I read a picture of him with a doe, not following a doe. He's always just walking by or working that scrape. That's all he ever did. And, uh, you know, here, here it is. I think it was Saturday night after Thanksgiving or, or Saturday. I'd set all day. The, the wind was good and, and set all day and um, just starting to get a little dusky. You know, the sun's going down and 
been there all day, so you're just trying to stay awake and stay stay focused. And, and I'm facing north, and I, I see something coming around the bend from the north, and I get all excited. And uh, it's a it's about a 130 inch ten point that I'd passed up three or four times. And um, he walks walks into my shooting lane and stops, and he's he's looking really intent to the south. And it's like, okay, okay, what's coming? And I turn around a little bit, and well, here's this two-year-old eight-point coming from the south, and and uh, they kind of get together, and their hair bristles up, and they actually tink antlers a little bit, and and uh, they get tired of each other. And the eight-pointer keeps going north, but the ten-point walks straight east of me and lays down, maybe 40 yards away, directly between me and the truck, where I'm where I have to walk out. And, and I hate it when that happens. I never like to spook deer. And so I'm sitting in the stand thinking, man, I got to pee and I want to get out of here and I'm tired and hungry and I need to stretch. And, you know, I'm, I'm down the last 10 minutes, maybe. And, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden I hear something. I look over and, and son of a gun, that 10 points, standing right there in the uh, in my shooting lane, standing broadside, facing away, looking at that other buck laying down. And just like that, just just in an instant, um, you know, I stood up, took my bow off the hook, came to full draw and shot just that quick. And, you know, and, and j- just as quick when I shot, I felt my bow arm drop and I saw the arrow hit low and I was just so upset with myself. I said, that was so stupid. You waited and waited and waited and, and you hit low, but, but it hit the deer and I knew it hit him because when he, you know, he turned and ran, the, the arrow broke off, and I saw the fletching in flying through the air. And just instantly, he was back around the, the bend in the creek, and I got my, you know, got my binoculars up, trying to watch, trying to watch. And, uh, and it's getting low light and looking through the trees, and, and I thought I could see him standing like 80 yards away. And, uh, and, and then I couldn't see anything, couldn't see him. And... So I sat back down and, and just reliving the shot. It's like, man, was it good enough? Was it good enough? And, um, and then what's going through my mind is just two years before I'd, I'd hit a buck, almost the same spot, you know, almost the same conditions. And, uh, just barely, barely caught the bottom of the heart between the heart and the brisket. And, uh, he went about 600 yards before I found him. And, but I did find him, but that's what's going through my mind. And, uh, so I'm thinking, well, is he, is he, did he lay down there? And if I get out of the stand, he'll see me going to the truck. So I just sat there for two hours and, and waited. And I thought, well, I'm going to wait till 8.30 and, and get out of here. And so, you know, eventually I, I, after the two, two and a half hours, I crawled out of the stand and I actually walked north down the bottom of the creek for three or 400 yards, made a big old circle going back to the truck just in case he was laying out there still alive and, and went to the truck and, um, you know, tried to take a nap. And as I was going to give it several hours and, and, uh, I, I may have dozed off a little bit, but anyhow, about midnight, I decided I, I'm going to go try to find him. He's either dead or, you know, I'm going to have to track him tomorrow. And, and, uh, went back in there with, with the headlamp and flashlights and, um, you know, my first pass, I'm just going to go out to where I thought I saw him laying down and see if he's there. And he wasn't there, and, and it was actually a Milo field, which has streaks of red all over it. Just terrible place to blood trail a deer, especially at night. And and then I tried to find where he walked into the creek, and I couldn't find that. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to make one more pass out there in the in the Milo, a little farther out this time. And uh, if I don't find him, I'm going to give it up and come back in the daylight. You know, I, I still felt like I got him, but. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to find him at night. And uh, lo and behold, I'd made that second pass just a little farther out in the Milo field and there he was laying. So, so yeah, what, what I thought was too low was a perfect heart shot, just right through the center. He maybe made 80 yards and uh, I don't know if that was him I saw standing there or, or another deer. Um, But uh, yeah, he was just out there the whole time. He, he'd been dead the whole time. It was pretty exciting. It's, you know, Jim, I got to read that article and I forget which magazine it was in, but, um, the thing that I loved 
is when you're hunting, there's, there's the constant ups and downs. There's, you know, and, and you captured it so well in the article where, you know, about the time you got discouraged, then you'd see them on camera. So then all of a sudden it, it bounces you back up and you're on that, you know, level 10 for a certain amount of time. And then, then the discouragement started to creep in. And that was just a really neat display. I don't see that often, you know, the frustration. Everybody's, oh, here's how the hunt went. Everything was great. And I thought you captured very well the frustration, the excitement, the disappointment, the just this the ping pong back and forth of emotions on a hunt like that. You know, Jason, I think a lot of people, I think that's what's wrong with um, the non-hunting community when they become hunters is they've been painted this picture of I went out and sat in a tree and shot a deer when it walked by. And they have no idea of the struggle, the emotional battle. They have no idea, uh, uh, like you said, the ups and the downs. Because when people share these stories, they want to share them as as they look like such a great hunter. You know what I mean? And, and so in all podcasts and, and videos and, and what you watch on TV and what you see on social media is, oh, yeah, I went out and shot this deer and uh, everything was awesome. And so when a new hunter tries to get into the sport, they're like, well, maybe I'm not a good hunter because this is it's not working for me. You mean it took more than three days to to, to shoot a deer, and uh, yeah, and they just don't understand that. So, so I love I love when a hunt unfolds, and you see the true story behind it. You don't just hear, oh yeah, I went out and set in a story, or set in a tree stand and and shot this deer. Whether the, whether they're just a bad storyteller or whether they're trying to cover up, you know, the hard truths of of what hunting looks like. It still paints a bad picture for non-hunters in their mind. Yeah, and I, that's something that I struggle with because it's you know I've, I'm no Jim Willems, but by gosh I, I can hold my own in a lot of hunting camps, and I find for myself if you know if elk for example if if you're hearing them or seeing them it's real easy to stay up and and charge up that next ridge and and sit there for an extra hour to glass and all the things that it takes to be successful, but when you hunt for four or five or six days and and if you don't feel that you're in them you know if you're not hearing them if you're not seeing them if you're just not not even seeing the sign you know they're around but it's just not quite connecting it's hard that next day to to charge up that next mountain and and do the things that it takes to do to be successful yeah and uh i just thought that was very for me you know having hunted for my entire life. That was very valuable for me. It was very, very well done. So kudos, Jim. Well, I appreciate that. And, and yeah, there was literally at least three different times when, when, uh, I got out of the tree stand and thought, uh, this, this isn't working. I just got to go do something else. And, and, you know, thank God for trail cameras. If it hadn't been for trail cameras, for one, I, I would have never known this deer existed. Um, and, and yeah, that's a technology tool that a, that a few people have a problem with, but you know, it had so much excitement to your hunt. And, and another aspect is, uh, I'm fortunate to have some pretty good places to hunt, uh, not just whitetails, but I've, I've had some great tags and great opportunities, but, uh, I could remember in, in 2011 and 2013, it was two different bucks. Uh, those two years I was hunting really world-class deer, um, big deer you know uh, one of, they were both non-typical um so that you really can't compare them to this this big typical and this typical i killed was the biggest typical buck i've seen in my life in 40 years of deer hunting um but in those two years in 2011 and 2013 um i hunted those particular deer for three weeks never saw them and went home empty so so the whole time you're I was hunting this deer i was thinking about that too you know is this going to be another deer that, you know, I hunt for three or four weeks and I don't ever see? And if that's what happens, then that's fine. That's, that's just great stories. But, but yeah, those doubts. And, and then, you know, especially when you have, you know, a hundred, uh, a deer probably pushing 170 inches on another property that you're getting pictures of every three or four days during the daylight. Um, it, it makes it tough to, to stick with one deer, but this one was so exceptional. I just had to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it paid off. It's always nice when, when you put in the work and you get the reward. Well, you got that right. Yep. Yeah. Yes, I, I was doing some blacktail hunting. In fact, I called you about it just, just for some tips. And and I had a couple bucks that 
that were takers for me and the entire season I did not get one picture of those things on on camera during the daylight hours every single thing was was in the middle of the night and so um I know you helped me kind of develop some new game plans and and uh, I'm going to give it another go next year but it uh it's interesting it's neat to know that those the ones you're looking for are there and it's it's even better when it does work out for you yeah it sure is and yeah. either way it's just it's just the the fact that we're able to do that and have those experiences you know we are just really blessed yes well you know you mentioned earlier that when you're you know, I, I think everybody, all of us love to hunt, but there's a different intimacy when you're chasing them. I know for me, I'm a compound hunter, and so I get closer to the animals with the bow for longer periods of time than what you ever do with the rifle. You know, I've been in herds of elk where if I'd had a rifle and a rifle tag, I mean, it's it's over in 30 seconds, yet you're there for 45 minutes or an hour trying to, you know, move your chest pieces around to get in, in position and you see and you hear things when you're that close for so much longer that that not everybody can relate to and i would imagine with with the recurve or with trad equipment it's even more so because you know with, with the rifle at 100 yards it's all over with the bow you may be in the game or you may not even be anywhere near the game with you know traditional equipment now all of a sudden that drops down to what 30 40 yards yeah you know 40 max especially for most people but you know on on you know it, it depends on the species of animal you know with uh like a brown bear you you kind of want to keep under 20 because the there's there's so much more at risk and and they're harder to kill um but you know uh, uh the old saying goes uh with the traditional shooter you know our hunt starts where your hunt ends you know the the compound guy you can shoot 50 yards most, most anybody can shoot 50 yards if they need to with a compound bow and and uh very very few recurver longbow hunters will ever take a shot that long so so we just we just have to get one or two levels closer and uh yeah um and, and you know it, that just makes it that much more exciting you and know, it makes yeah. your hunt longer because it doesn't work most of the time you try to get closer and you just can't and so you have to keep trying and trying and trying and you have to accept that, you know, you're just not going to be as successful. Um, and you also, also have to accept that it's going to take more time and, and plan more time. You know, yeah. uh, Jason, I got I to gotta tell Jim something real quick. Um, so, Jim, I don't know if I told you this, Jason, but Jim is the one that, that kind of walked me through getting my start with a recurve. And, uh, and Jim, I just wanted to share with you, man, a few weeks ago in South Texas, I harvested my first animal with a recurve. All thanks to your help. Oh man, that's that's cool. That's always fun when it works, though, especially the first one because the first one's always the hardest. It doesn't matter what it is. I I had never been, and it was I don't want to say just a hog. It was a hog, um, but I had gotten out of my blind. We had decided to move um, move this blind, and so we got out a little early before sundown, and uh, so we could get a head start tearing the blind down before it got dark and. As we were tearing this blind down, we hear some hogs rooting around. And that story reminded me of it because with a compound, I would have drew back and shot from where I was, you know, a, you know, a 40-yard shot and the pig was dead. Uh, but I realized I still have quite a bit to go with this recurve before I can get a shot. And as I was stalking up on this animal, I had never in my life been so nervous to fling an arrow at something because this, even when I started with a compound, it was just more of like a, oh yeah, I can hit a, a bullseye, you know, it's no problem. But I was so nervous to fling an animal at this hog. And so when I heard it squall and run off and die, you want to talk about a sense of just, okay, you do, you can do this. You know, this is something that is obtainable. Um, it was, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Oh, I, I understand. I I can remember mine too. It's been a long time ago that I can still remember it. Yeah, it was awesome. And man. what was yours? What was your um, first one, Jim? Uh, a white-tailed deer, okay. with a recurve anyway. I was I, gonna I, say, I, I was gonna say, Jason, he's about to show me up and be like, "Well, mine was an African lion, uh, 
with yeah. a recurve. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know, I, I started hunting with a recurve bow. Um, I think I had hunted elk the year before, but other than that, all I'd ever killed was whitetail deer. Um, but you know, it's just one of those things. I, I thought it was cool. I picked it up. I, I knew a guy that had done it in the past. He didn't do it anymore, but he was really good with it. And, uh, you know, he, he told me he could hit a pie plate at 40 yards. And I was just like, nobody can do that with a recurve without sights. And he said, sure you can, you just got to practice. And, uh, sure enough, you can do it. So well, it's, it's a lot of fun. And and then getting that close, that, there's some of those animals, you know, a brown bear. I don't know that I want to be, you know, 20 yards or less from a brown bear when, when I'm trying to hurt him. So. Yeah. The, uh, my other brown bear story is I had one the, the year before on a different hunt, different area. I had one facing me at three steps and, uh, a big old boar, brown bear. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it gets exciting sometimes. That's when we were at Omaha and I got to have dinner with, with Don jr. We were talking about it because he was going right after he did our keynote speech at at convention he was going on a brown bear hunt and so i asked him i said hey do you you know are you going to do it with a bow and he says man i don't want to get that close to a brown bear <laughs> i said I don't, I don't blame you i don't either so yeah yeah and, and some of us are just uh, uh genetically deficient i don't know how <laughs> to put it um I, I, for whatever reason when i'm that close to a bear i'm way more excited than i am scared and yeah, and maybe maybe that'll come back to bite me someday. But uh, it, it it's almost like I just I know for whatever reason I know they're not going to hurt me, and I and I know it's going to turn out okay. I, I don't know if that's it or yeah. not. But actually, I get I get less shook up on bears than just about anything else, which is really weird. Really weird. Shoot, I'll uh, I'll get buck fever over a, coy- a bobcat or a coyote. Huh. About anything else anymore. Yeah. You know, we had John Fossil on a while ago from Jack Creek Preserve and his, his favorite thing is the dangerous game, you know, the bears and the lions. And, and he was kind of explaining that to us as, as far as what he goes through in that scenario. And it's, it's definitely neat to hear. So it's, it's, I respect that. I'm, I'm going to have to rethink it, but I, I totally respect it. Hunting in Kansas, Jason, a skunk's about the most dangerous thing we chase around here. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Jim, here's one thing that we ask, we're, we're, we're to the point in our podcast where we have to ask the question. We ask every single guest, what is one piece of equipment that you take with you that you can't live without on your hunts that might be a little bit different than, than what everybody else might have in their pack? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And, and of course, I've been listening to your podcast, so I knew you were going to ask that. So I, I'm kind of prepared. Well, now I feel um, honored, Jason. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Jim Willis you know, listening to our podcast. Yeah, yeah. And, and oh, by the way, um, not to get too sidetracked, I just listened to the uh, Jack Frost podcast this morning, and he gave excellent, excellent advice on – knowing where you hit and how to follow up an animal. Everybody needs to listen to that you because know, my experience is exactly the same. Everything he said was just exactly right on. You know, that episode yeah. is only that episode, Jason, has only been out for two days. And I haven't even told you this, but that episode's only been out for two days and I already have gotten Lord ten emails or text messages or phone calls talking about how incredible it was to hear uh, that episode with Jack Frost. So uh, definitely go listen to that episode because people are raving over uh, being able to hear those stories from Jack. If, yeah, and that yeah. one, I mean, Jack is just, I mean, he's Jack Frost. But at the same time, we're we're getting, I just got an email a little bit ago from Ben Solaris who was on yeah. a while back yep. from Australia. So our podcasts are reaching literally all over the world. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So anyway. Okay. So back on track. Back on track. Yeah, so yeah. there's there's uh you know there's there's really only one thing I can't live without, and that's someone else had brought it up, and that's chapstick. Um, in this country, you hunt so dry sometimes that you got to have that. But but then there's two other things that that I take, and they're they're both completely different. But I always take a uh, an iPod full of uh, audio books. 
And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Sitting in a ground blind, I will listen to a book from start to finish. Um, uh, because I, I can't read in a ground blind because, sure enough, you kind of lose focus and you'll read for two or three minutes and you'll look up and a deer's walking by. So so the, the uh, iPod will let you stay focused um, and, and, and attention. You know, because you listen to a book, but you can keep your eyes up and scanning the whole time. Oddly enough, I never use one in a tree stand. Um, and, huh. and I think it's because there's just so much going on in a tree stand. And I do rely a lot on my ears in a tree stand because uh, an animal can come in any direction from a tree stand and you can probably get a shot. Whereas with a ground blind, they pretty much have to be right in front of you because you don't have the windows open in the back. Um, but, but one other thing that, that I just bought this last fall was um <clears throat> i turned over my four-wheeler on a wyoming elk hunt back in september and busted my head open and thought i was going to bleed to death i could not get it to stop bleeding <clears throat> so um uh, when i eventually got help the guy that helped me had a, a blood stopper gauze pad that, that it's a you know like a six inch square medical pad that was filled with blood stopper powder or liquid or whatever and uh, as soon as I got home, I bought some of those. And then I also found a little smaller packet of blood stopper powder that I keep, you know, I keep in my backpack. I have in my truck. I always have first aid kits in all my trucks, um, all, all two, the one in New Mexico and the one in Kansas. So uh, those blood stopper pads, I, I think, you know, they, they should be somewhere in your, uh, in your first aid kit. That's a great tip. Great tip. But other than that, you know, it's pretty much the same stuff everybody else carries. I, I've been using a spot, the you know, the satellite positioning, personal satellite tracker, whatever, um, that, you know, no matter where you're at, you can push the button and my wife gets a text and an email saying I'm okay. Worst comes to worst, you can do 911. Um, a lot of guys are using the Garmin inReach, and I, I think I'm going to switch to that. I think I'm going to next year, by next year, I'll have an inReach which actually allows you to text and, and communicate back and forth a little bit. Whereas with the spot, it's just from you to the outside world. But, you know, yeah. things like that, things that will keep you safe. But yeah, the inReach, that's, that's exciting to hear because Garmin just signed on, gosh, I think last week as, as a new corporate partner. So they will love to hear that. Yeah, and, and just to let you know, when I got in a four-wheeler accident, the guys that, that – helped me and and got the bleeding to stop one of them had an in reach and he was able to text search and rescue um whereas with my That's with awesome. my spot with my spot i would have had to push the just the 911 button they wouldn't have had any details wouldn't have known what was going on and they'd have sent in a helicopter whereas with yeah. the uh with the in reach with the text part of it um you know they they were able to just bring in a, a search and rescue truck and drive me out they they could know that it wasn't that serious they, they knew they needed to come get me but i wasn't about to die you know that's yeah. why that's why i got an in reach um on my first on my first um out west backpacking style hunt uh one of the guys i was with and, and there in idaho shared with me a story much like that and he's like dude you know for 290 bucks 300 bucks catch him on sale for you know a uh, hundred bucks off or whatever, it could literally save your life. You know, it's not just about texting back to your wife um, and your kids saying, I love you, but it could literally save your life. And uh, I, I remember I went home and immediately ordered one um, because it is something that, you know, it's nice to be able to text back to your family, but also it could literally save your life in the end. Oh, without a doubt. If you're hunting in areas where you have no cell service, you have to have something like that, e either the inReach or the spot. You have to have something that that goes through a satellite that can get you help if you need help. Yeah, it's. I think a lot of times we like to feel that we're invincible, but in in this case, we're not always invincible. Yeah, you uh, you end up in the emergency room, and that kind of wakes you up. Yeah. Well, Jim, I just want to thank you so much for all you do for Pope and Young. For all you do for bow hunting and hunting in general, you're a great ambassador for the sport. I know you've helped me a bunch, and, and I just want to thank you for all of that and for joining us today on the podcast. It was, it was sure a lot of fun. We appreciate you being here. 
Well, I'm glad you invited me. And, and as you can tell, I just, I love to tell hunting stories so I could do this all day long. Oh yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. We'll have to do it again. Thanks guys.